You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. I had not heard of the literary genre rural noir until I read Laura McHugh's first novel, The Weight of Blood, a book which I am still haunted by years after reading it. Her third book, The Wolf Wants In, came out earlier this month and is another page-turning, suspenseful and haunting exploration of rural darkness, family secrets and blood loyalty. Later in the show, Laura will be joining me to talk about her new book and how growing up deep in the Ozarks gave her a rich vein of dark tales and troubled lives to pull from. First, though, we're going to spend time with another troubled literary character, Hedda Gabler. In 1891, the Norwegian playwright Henrik Ibsen, at the height of his fame, premiered a new play, first in Munich and then in rapid succession in Berlin, London and Copenhagen. It was both revered and reviled. This was the late Victorian era and women had long been typecast as warm, maternal, feminine and, of course, reverent of their men. Hedda was none of these things. She was irrational, conflicted, headstrong, unhappy and often malevolent. The stage newspaper called her a beast degraded from womanhood. The London Daily Telegraph's theatre critic thought it a horrible story and a hideous play. None of which stopped people from flocking to see it and Hedda has endured as one of theatre's greatest female characters, often thought of as the female Hamlet. So... It is no surprise that Greenhouse Theatre Project founder Elizabeth Brown Palmieri, having given us a phenomenal Hamlet last year, wanted to explore Hedda's tortured and complex mind. And she is here today along with director Matt Trucano and visiting actor Julia Valen. Hello, everyone, and Hi. welcome. Good morning. <laughs> so I'm almost surprised that Greenhouse Theatre Project has not produced Hedda Gabler before now. Elizabeth, has Hedda been calling to you for some time? Absolutely. <laughs> but as everyone always asks me, you know, when they when they say, oh, well, what's the next season hold? That is a, a question that creates more fear in me and terror than than anyone knows, because for me, I have this like incredibly long laundry list of dream plays to put on and some will happen and some won't in my lifetime. But the thing is, is that it all comes down to timing. And with this piece, it was all about the the right space and the right director and the right team and even up until a couple months ago I wasn't sure that this was going to happen even though I had put it out there I'd talked about it I had started you know getting things going and everything was in motion but it was about having the right director for this piece Um, it's a very challenging it's a very challenging show and it was a role that I knew that I wanted to play. I didn't want to direct it. I wanted to play Hedda. And um, I'm, I'm a very selfish person that way. But um, so when Matt signed on to do it, then it was the green light. And I knew. But it took a little seducing. Um, and we had a few conversations on the phone. And the, one of the first things Matt said to me when I talked to him, because Matt lives in New York, and we were having these long conversations throughout the month of June. And he said, but Liz, this is an impossible show. And 
I was like, yeah, I know. That's why I want to do it. And that's why I think that you'd be the right director for it. So off we go. Matt, did you think you were the right director for it? It was a big question for me because I present as male and I am a dude. And so I had a big question of if I'm the right person to try to interpret this very female necessary story. But I found that I am the right director for it because (laughs) I, I really like have attempted to dig into what's going on, not only in the in Hedda, but in the community around her, all of the all of the people. It's really a play about the society that is telling Hedda how to be. So in that way, while I don't know that it's necessarily a feminist piece, I think that it is a piece that speaks to women and to men about how we sort of put each other in boxes. Well, now I know within the theatre world, Hedda Gabler is an incredibly well-known play, but a lot of people listening may not know the story, Matt. So give us a precy of what Hedda Gabler is about. So Hedda Gabler is the daughter of a general, of a famous military general in Norway. And he has deceased, and she is orphaned, and she's lived a very crazy life after the death of her father. In our production, she plays music, electronic music. Uh, in, in Ibsen, she is a pianist, and so she's been living a, a big, crazy, party-filled life. And at one point in the play, she's, she's asked, why, why did you get married? And she said, because I got tired. Because I I had to start to look for what society says my life should be. I'm tired of fighting against all the time. So she's trying out what a future might look like for her. So we meet her when she has first returned from her honeymoon with her husband, George Tessman. And there are, as well as George, there are two other principal men in Hedda's life. Elizabeth, tell us about Judge Brack. Judge Brack is, um, he's kind of that classic villain, but not to give any, you know, too much away. He's also one of Hedda's closest friends, and he's probably the one in the piece that knows her the best at this stage in her life, even though there is another character that has known her from way back. I think that Brack, because of because of his intimacy with her, he is aware of her vulnerabilities. He's also aware of her her fears and he knows her strengths. He kind of knows these different angles and he's an angle man and he knows how to work angles. So I'll leave it at that. And then the other person is Isla Loveborg, as you mentioned, who knows Hedda from way back. Mm-hmm. What do we know about him at the beginning? Loveborg is, he's that dark poet that all the girls are always attracted to when you're in that younger stage of your life. <laughs> you know, the guy who's kind of brooding and, and dark and mysterious and just in constant struggle or turmoil, the artistic type. And then you grow up and uh, you mature and you realize that that's not always sustainable, you know, to be with someone in in that wheelhouse. But Loveborg definitely, that character captures a lot of the, this part of Hedda that burns inside of her. All of the men, all three of the men, uh, and we talk about this a lot in rehearsal, but they kind of uh, represent a different part of Hedda. And uh, Loveborg is definitely 
that passion in her and the the artist in her and uh, and and those are things that she's tried to mask and cover up um, in order to move forward in this new life that that society has created for her to be a wife to be dot 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 Julia you play Thea Elstead who mm. is one of Hedda's old school friends kind we're, of we're pronouncing it Taya um, it's oh Taya <laughs> Sorry, it's actually a line in the play. play. That's funny that you actually said that. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually, I'm actually corrected on her, on yeah, her on name stage. in the play. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you're kind of an old school friend of Hedda's who suddenly mm. reappears in Hedda's life full frenemies. of your own <laughs> conflicts. Definitely mm. frenemies. Mm. I'm going to come back to her in a minute and have you tell me about her. But I, sure. first of all, let's get to the central character, Hedda. Now, she has been explored by so many actors and directors. This is a very well and often produced play over the last 130 years. But <laughs> long, I know I know that your header is going to have all sorts of nuances that are non-traditional. So tell us about Why the would you header. say that? Diana? <laughs> it's I almost like you. you've seen my work before. <laughs> I have. So tell us about the header that we're going to meet next weekend. Who is your header? My header, mm, my header is, she's a free spirit. She is, um, she's fun. She's funny. I mean, you know, Hedda is, yes, it's a tragedy and a Norwegian tragedy. I like that. Uh, and she is, you know, there is a lot of, the themes are very serious, you know, to, to be honest, in the show. However, it's also... There are some really funny lines, like Ibsen, wicked, wicked oh, wickedly gosh, funny yeah. lines, like just little jabs that are so, they are so nuanced and they are so kind of like under the radar. And I was raised in a very Norwegian Lutheran household in Minnesota, like the land of Scandahuvians. And, <laughs> and it's like this under the radar passive aggression that is just like always percolating you know what I mean and um, you keep a smile on your face and you keep cool and you don't get too worked up over things but deep down you know that there, it's it's there you know and so those little jabs to me just kind of um, bring back memories of like just growing up in a very like Minnesota nice society where we don't pointedly hit what needs to be spoken of or whatever we're just navigating through these these things in our own little way but I think that Hedda she's all over the map I mean she is like I love that you connected her to Hamlet because I played Hamlet you know a little over a year ago and I'm trying to you know separate them of course but there are a lot of similarities between them and mainly you know this journey that they go on throughout the piece this journey of self-destruction or what or what have you and I think what's funny to me is I've framed Hedda the piece itself it's kind of like a a Christmas Carol in the sense of she has these like ghosts from her past that like hmm. revisit her and like bring up all of this past crap that she is forced to deal with or teach her a lesson, whatever that is. But these these men have kind of like represented these ghosts and they have her past, they have her present and and one has her future in, in his hands. And so my Hedda is dealing with these different personalities that live inside of her. And so I've been, as the actor, trying to figure out what those different personalities are. It's like playing multiple roles in a show. Hmm. She is many people mm -hmm. all wrapped into one. Mm -hmm. 
one of the things that surprised me, I watched their National Theatre Live production. With Ruth Wilson? With Ruth Wilson. I saw that one too. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. But what was surprising, because I had read the play and I knew it was a tragedy and I read it as a tragedy. So even the lines that are funny, when you're just reading it on the page, you're like, oh, I know what's coming. So, you know, it's not not funny. Mm -hmm. But the audience were in stitches for like half the play. And I'm like, do they not know that this is a tragedy? I mean, Mm -hmm. it was very funny. And so she does have all of these great snarky quips Mm-hmm. That she mm-hmm. deals out. So you still- Snarky, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a that is play, though, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It be funny. Yeah. You know. He wrote it that way. I mean, yeah. that was his intent that yeah. people would find the comedy in the darkness. Yeah. Ibsen should yeah. be funny. Chekhov should be funny. All know? the time. That's that. Always. Yeah, we and we connect Chekhov with Ibsen a lot, too. Chekhov was, you know, like the Russian version of Ibsen. And he, um, I mean, he. A lot of his plays say, like, The Seagull is a comedy. He calls it a comedy. That We put that on our poster when we, yeah. when we did it. And um, But you go see Chekhov, and, and people are killing themselves and, and brokenhearted and stuff like that. And so you're like, hmm, really? This must be a cultural difference, because I'm not quite sure. And, and it is, you know what I mean, in a lot of ways. But I think, in general, it's the laughing through the tears idea. And our culture is so into, like, we, we love ironic humor. We really love, like, we have a great time with Hedda. We we are so rooting for her in a way because she reminds us of us. For better or worse. For better and for worse, you know. <laughs> so, Julia, going back to Taya Elstead, traditionally she's portrayed as kind of she's the weak and feminine counterpart to Hedda's headstrong malevolence. Mm-hmm. She's also the, probably the most courageous person in the play. She but is. knowing how Elizabeth's adaptations work, I'm wondering if she's going to be the same person that I've seen or, and read in other productions or whether there's a twist to tear in this one. Yeah, no, I, I don't think she will be. It's, it, um, it's interesting that you say that because I, uh, I went to Rocheport last weekend and I was talking <laughs> to these people in this lovely little antique store and they had heard of Hedda Gabler. And they said, oh, yeah, Taya, she's the, like, nervous, wide-eyed friend. And I said, oh, yeah, I guess that is how she's, you know, you watch the um, Ingrid Bergman one, and mm-hmm. she's, like, blonde, and she has these huge eyes. And Do your like, impression. Oh. Of what? Of the Ingrid Bergman Taya. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> You're on the spot. You're on the spot. You're on the spot. Wait, You're on the spot. Okay, bye. <laughs> oh, hello. Yeah. Um, right. Anyway, the answer is no. I mean, honestly, I've really fallen in love with Taya. I see why she's portrayed like that partially for the contrast Mm. but really she is the she is an incredibly courageous character and the reason that she is nervous is because her set of circumstances at the moment are dire you know Mm. she i yeah i don't want to give too much away but like her her life is in crisis and she is doing what she can to fix it you know so everything around her is falling apart and she's trying to patch it so she's like working you know of course she comes off as oh I feel so fiery about this of course she comes off as nervous because she's dealing with a lot but ultimately she is really good at that and she's a character who has never been given the time or the opportunity to think about herself Uh, she's mm -hmm. always been thinking about other people that's what that's what she's always done that's why she married someone older who she doesn't love because she had to because there was an opportunity for stability and money and of course she took that and that's partially or fully that's fully why she falls in love with one of the other characters in the play because 
because he shows her another part of herself mm-hmm. and allows mm-hmm. her to my beef with Ibsen is that it is a man who shows a woman herself mm-hmm. personally I don't mm-hmm. like that but mm-hmm. the beautiful mm-hmm. part of it is that she is allowed the space to see herself for the first time and rec- really for the first time and and recognize herself and her own wants and needs and skills as a writer and like as an independent person. One of the things I don't understand about Taya is why she would choose Hedda as her confidant. She mm. was never nice to her at right. school. She pulled her hair and once threatened to set fire to it, yes. which she does yes. once again during the play. So uh-huh. why, <laughs> good, why, why trust her now? It's a good question. Um, I think that Boisterous she... Boisterous just girlishness. I love that moment in the play, actually. <laughs> you threatened to set my hair on fire. Um, I She's think such a bully. Hedda's such a bully. She is a bully. I think there are a couple layers for Taya. The main one is that she really just comes to the Tessman's household for George because they, let's see, have we explained yeah, enough about the characters for people to know? George and, and so, I are, are kind of academic rivals. Right. Yeah, right. George is married to Hedda and um, George Tessman and Loveborg were used to be good friends and used to work together. Everybody has a history in the play. Everybody yeah. has a history, <laughs> yeah. but... And Taya has a history with George, so she comes to town, she comes to the Tessmans mainly, solely, mm-hmm. to ask George for his help because she thinks that Loveborg will show up there. But she she comes for George's help. And yeah. then Hedda happens to be there. And then I think Taya is just so prey. Starved She's like for prey. Like kindness and she friendship prey, that she total. sort of falls into it mm-hmm. and then accepts it because she needs love so mm-hmm. bad. The amazing thing about Julia here in this process is that, that she's really making sure that she has a fully like an airtight set of circumstances for her that it, that feels really real. Mm-hmm. Like it's, uh, it's, and it's something that is like throughout the cast, what we've been searching for the whole time is like, what, what is real? really going on here because Ibsen's written like this choose your own adventure mystery almost like each of them has so there's so much rich backstory and it actually took us like three times as long to stage the first half of the play as it did the second half just because it's so densely packed with information that the audience has to get yeah so so important it's yeah like setting the stage for those first two acts it was kind of a grueling process, but once you got through it, we had to do that, like Matt said, because then the last two acts cruise, and it's like, it's just dominoes. We have to have that stability going into it so we can just completely fall apart. And one missing <laughs> domino stops the whole train. Right. One of the characters we meet at the outset is George's aunt, Juliana. Juliana. Mm-hmm. And she's the aunt who raised him and is quite besotted with her nephew and his brilliance. Now, in your production, she's played by the fabulous Monica Palmer. Mm-hmm. But again, you are deviating from the norm of her being a benign and kindly presence. You've made her a slightly different personality. Tell us about how your adaptation of Aunt Juliana affects our view of Hedda. Ibsen sort of among theater people has this sort of reputation for being very polite the oh dear how are you darling Um, and so 
With Juliana in the first scene, we really needed to jolt the audience into this isn't your grandmother's Ibsen. And really, from very strongly from Liz's experience and from all of our experience, the story of the three of us is that we all went to the same college in Minnesota together. So we share this. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we share this. We share, we share this Scandinavian sort of cultural history. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and in that world, it, it, it's very easy for people to be very shut off if you aren't a part of the family. If you're, if you're not in the in crowd, you really aren't. And, and there's this real fear of falling in society or being seen as anything other than sort of placid and serious. Mm-hmm. And so we really wanted to make Juliana really represent that. The first line of the play is, oh, they're not up yet. Which is to say it's early in the morning and she's shown up and like she expects that like her, they're up at six and like doing around doing their life. And that's really like, that's certainly my experience of growing up in the ever Midwest is that like, there's a kind of judgment of if you don't subscribe to the failing ideology, <laughs> you are totally outside. You are. And, and so I'm interested in showing how much she loves her family and how cold we can be outside of the clan. Mm, like mm-hmm. there's you're either in or you're out in mm-hmm. this culture. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth, tell us you've chosen an interesting venue for this production. Tell us yes. a little bit about your choice of venue. Okay, so I mean everyone who knows Greenhouse knows that we are site specific. We like to um, use unconventional, non-traditional theater spaces, um, which oftentimes is a challenge and something that I really love because I I kind of court a space for a long time before I decide, you know, that I'm going to do something in it because it has to be the right piece, the right time, like I was saying before. Um, The Missouri Theater, the fabulous historic Missouri Theater, has really not been a space that has called to me in the past because, of course, it is a giant 1,100-seat theater that is is it's beautiful i love attending events there but it's 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 kind of it's a little different than what we what we usually do it's the a different tradition. flavor <laughs> i've thought about it in the past you know using different aspects of it i thought about doing a show a couple years ago just using the basement so all the green room space where the audience could traverse through the space and do something immersive down there or perhaps using like the lobby like out in the front and you know stuff like that with the balcony stuff But with Hedda, what I was envisioning was how cool would it be to put the actors and the audience on the stage and have this vast, vacant, empty space, which is the 1,100 empty seats staring back at us and just creating that isolated loneliness of what that feels like to be um, stared at by that. There's a purpose behind that. <laughs> well, the performativity of what we're doing when we're performing for society. Mm-hmm. Like, like, it feels very much like we are all, like, on display, the audience included, because ultimately, this is, like, the problems that Ibsen is, is 
pointing to are the exact problems of us in our life oh, in yeah. 2019. Oh, yeah. Like, how do we deal with relationships? How do we see the other? How do we, like, make the right decision for ourselves? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, how do we actually mm-hmm. follow what we actually want? And I think that that's had its mm-hmm. real tragedy, mm-hmm. is that mm-hmm. she decides, like we were saying at the beginning, that <sighs> she's going to try out another kind of personality, and she gets really far along before she realizes that it's not for her. It's not her. Mm-hmm. It's not her. When you're when you're trying to be something that you're not, and I think that it's going to be uncomfortable for the audience to see themselves reflected in some of these different characters because inevitably we all have been seeing different shades of ourselves yeah, and all these yeah, characters yeah. and we're kind of like, oh god. There's a reason that that. that theater critic in London said that it was what, what did you say like a horrible story a horrible yeah, story because yeah. yeah, he saw himself yeah of course of course it's a hard it's hard to be put in front of yourself and I feel put in front of myself all the time in this play yeah yeah yeah, when I read it, I, I saw a little bit of myself in there too, which was slightly concerning. <laughs> my thanks to my guests, Greenhouse Theatre Project founder Elizabeth Broughton Palmieri, director Matt Tricano, and guest actor Julia Valen. Greenhouse Theatre Project's production of Hedda Gabler opens next Friday, September the 6th at the Missouri Theatre. There are only four chances to see the show except but two. we're actually sold out on Friday and Saturday night so there are only tickets available for the two Sunday shows on September 8th and those shows are at 2.30 and at 7.30. Tickets can be found online. So if you do want to see it you should hurry over to greenhousetp.org to get your tickets probably today. Mm-hmm. This is not a show anyone is going to want to miss. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, Matt, and Julia. You're the best, Diana. (laughs) You are listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, we'll be back with Laura McHugh, who'll be talking about her new book, The Wolf Wants In. Don't wander off. There are dark shadows out there in Radioland. Speaking of the arts, when you read about novelist Laura McHugh's childhood growing up in the backwoods of southern Missouri, where dark dales shelter the secrets and truths of multiple generations bound together by blood and loyalty, you begin to get an insight into the haunted lives of the characters in her books. Laura's childhood as the youngest of eight children was hard scrabble poor, where you got by as best you could and where you looked the other way when that was in everyone's best interests. Her first novel, The Weight of Blood, was a chilling tale of secrets, missing persons and murder deep in the Ozarks. Her second novel, Arrowwood, centred around the disappearance of two-year-old twin sisters and the historical family home in rural Iowa that had kept its secret for 20 years. And in her latest novel, The Weight of Blood, more untimely deaths in an opioid-ravaged community leave three young women's lives inexorably altered as they struggle with tightly held dark secrets. She's been heralded as the queen of the haunted heartland by fellow crime novelist Mindy McKeer and her latest novel described as atmospheric grit lit with emotional depth. Welcome to the show, Laura McHugh. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I had to do a thesaurus search for the word haunting as I was thinking through what I wanted to ask you because I knew I was going to be in danger of overusing it. But words like foreboding and ominous or sinister don't really explain the feeling that you're left with after you close your books. The people and the places follow you round like a spine-tingling fog and settle into subconscious nooks of your brain. Do they ever leave you? 
Yes. Oh, thank you for that nice compliment. But yeah, I've talked about this before as well. People ask, you know, are you thinking what your characters are still doing? And they're pretty much dead to me when I finish (laughs) the book after spending, you know, a year or two, you know, writing and going through that rigorous editing process. And by the time it's over, I'm I'm thrilled kind of to leave them behind and start on a new a new project. Uh, Yeah, but it is kind of fun to come back and, and to talk about it after the fact, after some time has passed. They are not dead to me as a reader. The first book, I mean, I could not get it out of my brain for a long while, and they're still in there. I have this kind of dis-ease when I go into dark dales and wooded areas, and I I think, I don't know what's going on here, and that's really thanks to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's how, that's how my mind works as well. I'm always worried about what's going on in those dark places. Now, I know you get asked all the time what the inside of your head must be like, that you can create these really dark, chilling stories and horrible crimes, and how you're seeing, gosh, such a lovely place warm mother of two. Um, So how do you compartmentalize your brain? What is in that subterranean part of your writer's brain? I mean, I feel like I'm I've always been someone who will look at a pretty scene, you know, this nice rural setting and wonder where the bodies are. I mean, that's just how that's how my brain operates. And I don't think it makes me, you know, a dark person or anything like that. Uh, But it's always just kind of there in the back of my mind. And so, you know, I'm going around doing things with my kids and we're having fun and, you know, I'll notice things and just kind of store little ideas for stories later. So, yeah, there's definitely that darkness, but I don't feel that it, it brings me down you know, in my everyday life. In one of your essays about your rural noir genre, you said that writing brings you relief, that it, quote, bleeds out the darkness like leeches making room for more light to seep in. But you only became a writer relatively recently. You studied computer and library sciences and worked in the insurance industry. So was your mind a much darker place in these pre-literary days? (laughs) Well, I mean, I was always, when I was growing up, I was very into writing and writing short stories, and they were very dark pretty much early on. But it just wasn't something that I thought of that you could do for a living. I didn't know anyone who did something creative or anyone who was writing for a living. And so I didn't think I could become an author. Obviously, I knew some people did it because I love to read books, but it, I didn't think that I could do it. And so I went into a more technical field, really, just to, to make a living. And so when I lost my job, it was that underlying love of writing that I gave that chance to kind of come out and, and start this new career. Had you kept writing as an adult? I had, yeah. I would write short stories all the time. I just didn't really do anything with them. It was just kind of for me. I enjoyed writing them. Have they been useful as you've written the books? Have some of those stories inserted themselves into characters' lives? Yeah, I mean, some of the ideas I kind of keep in mind that I might be able to use. And like I had a piece of a novel that I kind of turned into a short story and went into an anthology. So I am trying to maybe do a little bit more with those stories, some of them that I've had on the back burner. You write openly about having grown up very, very poor in a rough-hewn house in the woods close to the Missouri-Arkansas border, and that, that place held a darkness for you. So tell me about the landscape of your childhood. Yeah, I mean, we moved to the Ozarks when I was fairly young, and I remember when we moved in and this elderly woman came up and was yelling from the edge of the property and we went out there and she introduced herself and I remember her saying, you know, if you see a grave in the woods, keep walking. 
And that was something that stuck with me from the very beginning of our time there. Because to me, I'm thinking, who did she bury in the woods? You know, (laughs) I was just assuming I wasn't thinking like old family graves, you know, and don't disturb them. I was thinking something sinister from the get go. And so for me, you're probably right. Yeah, well, I might be. I might be right. (laughs) Just the the isolation out there. It's beautiful, but it's very rugged. And you're far away from other people. And just kind of that sense that, you know, if you were screaming for help, no one would hear you. And that was just the kind of the feeling that I had starting out down there. I do have a little bit of a fear of the countryside for exactly that reason. I like being able to see the next person's house. I like being in an urban setting because I I always think that isolation in in a forest, which to many people is absolutely idyllic, to me just fills me with a little bit of dread because maybe my imagination is too vivid. Same here. Yeah, that's probably my problem because I feel the same way. (laughs) I loved your description of your house being halfway between the intentional nut butter community of East Winds. I buy that. I see it at Lucky's. And the white supremacist compound of the covenant, the sword and the arm of the Lord. And from your books and your description, it sounds like it was the former that that was the most out of place. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the intentional hippie community seemed like it didn't quite yeah. mesh, maybe, with the hollows and the dark places. How did you feel about the woods? Did you want to go into them? Were you curious about the graves you might find? Were there places that pulled you towards them? I mean, I, I was a little bit curious, but just there are so many snakes and spiders and scorpions and tarantulas migrate through there in the fall. There are just so many awful things out there uh, that I wasn't really exploring too much. There weren't a lot of trails. It was just rugged wilderness you know behind our house so I did not go out there very often but it is like you're mentioning the commune and the other place it's places where people would go that wanted to be separate from society and kind of purposely be isolated and so it was interesting how it drew those different kinds of groups for the same reasons similar reasons it was really your father who took you down there you say he was a type a workaholic and he had an early heart attack and that prompted him to change his life and move away why do you think he chose that area I think, again, just to be in that isolation, no one's looking over your shoulder. No one's telling you what to do. You can kind of just do whatever you want out there and no one's bothering you. I think he liked that. Did his personality affect your writing? Is he in your books? Uh, He's not in my books directly, but I think, yeah, some of his different mannerisms and different things that he might have done can kind of seep in there a little bit. You've written that he was, he demanded obedience. He was a strict father. Yes. And there's a strict father in your new book, Mm -hmm. The Wolf Wants In. Is that father in your book a little bit based on your dad? Not really, other than there was a heart attack. And I think the the father in the book had died of a heart attack. But other than that, not really. Yeah. I try to... You know, I'm sometimes inspired by real people, but I try not to ever put the real people in the book. (laughs) (laughs) In case you meet them in a dark forest. Exactly. I remember when The Weight of Blood came out that the story was, amongst, you know, the other literary people and people that I knew, that you had sent it to a few publishers and within a couple of hours the phone started to ring and you immediately had a book deal, which is just anathema to most (laughs) writers. Is that how it happened? Oh, not exactly. I mean... (laughs) I was trying to get an agent because I knew I wanted an agent to be able to sell to one of the big five publishers. And, you know, I was sending out my query letters and not really getting any response, not even really getting rejected, just not hearing back. So I had I spent, you know, months working on that and trying to rewrite this letter and trying to get that to work for me. And quite a bit of time went by. But then when I resent it, my new version, it was pretty much overnight that agents were calling. And then when I signed with an agent, she said, you know, within 48 hours, we'll hear something. And within 48 hours, she called and said there were eight different editors who were interested in purchasing the book. So then it went to auction. So it seems like it was very overnight. But, you know, it took 
a while to get to the point where things started happening overnight. I mean, it's no surprise when I read it. It's, it's a phenomenal literary debut and chilling and haunting and unput downable. So I'm not surprised. Were you, were you surprised? I was a little bit because I had, you know, lost my job and I was a stay at home mom of an infant and a toddler when I started writing the novel. And I was kind of isolated while I was writing it. I was mostly just at home by myself. And so after spending all that time kind of a little bit out of society, just alone with my babies, and then all of a sudden for this to be happening, it was kind of scary. Uh, it was exciting, but, you know, I was afraid to leave my house for a while. I thought I'm going to get hit by a bus before this becomes a reality, you know, before the book is published. And I was I was terrified. It was a little bit stressful. How long had it taken you to write it? Uh, it took probably about a year to write the rough draft. And then I spent time, you know, revising. I'm not sure exactly how much, but the whole process, I mean, it took a while. It took me more than six months to get an agent. It handles human trafficking to some degree, as well as murder and secrets. Um, had you spent time with, with Human Trafficking Coalition in Missouri and, and researched what actually is happening here? Well, I had read a lot of stories. It was something that had interested me, and I'd read a lot of news stories about it. And while I was about halfway through the book, I came across a news story from Lebanon, Missouri, which is the town where I had gone to high school. And it was a horrible trafficking case. And it really struck me because this happened in a small town where everyone knows everyone else and multiple people knew what was going on and no one tried to help this girl. And that really hit home for me. And that was why I kind of incorporated that theme of trafficking into the story. You, you've written someplace that uh, you said, you t tell me any dark story and I'll take you down a rural lane and in Missouri, and I'll show you a story that's way worse. It's It seems so implausible when we sit in a lovely college town like Columbia, Missouri, that such dark things are happening all around us. Is that hyperbole or you... you no, it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And because sometimes people, they don't enjoy you writing a dark crime story about the place where they live. Well, it's it's my home as well, but it's it's funny when they say that and I'll say, oh, well you heard about this and this and this crime, real crimes that happen, which are much worse than my book. Those kind of things happen here all the time. Uh, and it's in small towns, rural areas. I mean, it happens everywhere. So you, your new book, uh, The Wolf Wants In, is rooted in western Missouri, south of Kansas City. And like your first two books, I struggled to close the book at night, mostly because it was just tough to leave the characters behind. And I wanted to know, like, just one more chapter, one more chapter, what happens next? But also because it was dark outside and, you know, I didn't want to turn the light out. <laughs> so tell us briefly what the book The Wolf Wants In is about. Yes, it's about a, a woman who has lost her brother. Her brother has died, and they don't really know what happened to him. She's not able to get the police to investigate because she's in a very small town, and they're concerned with the discovery of a child's skull in the woods outside of town. So she's really left on her own to try to dig through her brother's life, and she's coming up with more questions than answers and starting to wonder how well she really knew him and what all he was involved in. And there's another family involved that seemed to be implicated in his untimely death, a family of slightly ne'er-do-wells that he married into. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yes. the Petite family. Yes, um, it's a family in the town who has maybe been involved in a little bit of crime and that sort of thing. It's sort of developed uh, a negative reputation in the town and a little bit involved in the drug trade. But the, the narrator from that family is an 18-year-old girl who is desperate to get out of this town and really kind of escape that background and escape this family. And just, you know, looking at small towns, you know, there are the people who want to stay and there are the people who want to leave. And sometimes it's hard to do both or either.
I'm guessing you wanted to leave. I did. (laughs) I did want to leave. And you know, there are wonderful people there. It's not really about that. Uh, It's just I I don't ever again want to live in such a rural place, like you said, where you can't see your neighbor's house. I kind of like living close to town. Do you think people are offended in those in those communities when you go back and they've read your book and they and they feel like they see themselves? You know, it's been rather wonderful. Actually, I do go down there and see some of the people I still know there. And and they're very supportive of the books. And I think part of it, which is something that is true for me, I know when I was growing up and I was reading books, I would have loved to see my own life and my own area reflected in the popular culture and in the fiction and didn't really have that. There was Mark Twain, and that was about it for Missouri, books that are 100 years old. So I think they kind of like seeing places that they know represented and having that familiarity there. I know this book has a a, a huge personal tone for you as one of your brothers died suddenly and his death remains unsolved. How does your journey to find the truth of his death mirror that of Sadie and Becca's quest to understand how and why their brother Shane died? Yeah, I mean, I felt like in real life I didn't have resolution. There were just a lot of dead ends. And so being able to write a story uh, where someone has faced a similar loss, but she is able to solve the mystery. So for me, that was really kind of nice. I could write a story that could be solved, and she's able to dig in and find out what happened. So I enjoyed that. And, And has that ability to solve it in the fictional world, has it helped you negotiate the frustration of not being able to solve it in the real world? I mean, not completely. There will always be questions, and I think that will always be hard. But it was it was kind of a way of working through that, I suppose. Are you still working on resolving your brother's death, or has that? There's really not much more we can that we can do at this stage. Mm. Would you read an extract from your book for us? This is from sure. The Wolf Once In. It's the, from the beginning of chapter two, and it introduces us to the Sullivan family and also to one of our main characters, Henley. Most people in Cutler County could recount the highlights of the Sullivan family's tragic history off the top of their heads. They knew that Harlan Sullivan had stabbed his 10-year-old daughter Emily to death with a pitchfork, accidentally, when she hid in the haymow to surprise him. They knew that Harlan's son, Earl, had given up college to help run the family business when Harlan fell ill, and that Earl's wife, Daphne, had died of cancer when their son, Jason, was six years old. And whether or not people knew Jason personally, they knew he was arrogant and spoiled, a gifted but lazy athlete, and a disappointment to his father. Folks in Blackwater had grown up under the gaze of Emily Sullivan's statue in Sullivan Park and made their living working at Sullivan Grain or in its shadow. They relied on Earl Sullivan to sponsor the local Little League and to bid ridiculous amounts for homemade pies at the annual 4th of July auction that paid for the fireworks display. Every spring, Earl sponsored the Emily Sullivan Memorial Essay Contest at Blackwater Elementary, inspired by the virtues his older sister had modeled in her short life. She had been a champion barrel racer in her age division, the only girl, and had survived a brutal fall, returning to competition as soon as the doctor would allow. After hearing a sermon about helping the less fortunate, she had boxed up all but a few of her dresses and shoes and hauled them to church in her wagon, a distance of several miles, to donate to orphans. When Henley was younger, she had been fascinated by Emily's legend. She'd stood in the park face to face with Emily's statue and imagined what it would be like to have this fierce girl as her friend. When the river swelled and spilled over the floodplain, she thought of Emily in the park, alone and unafraid, water creeping over her bare feet, up to her knees, covering her dress and her resolute lips, unwavering as she kept watch over the town. And when Henley grew older, 
and thought how unfair it was that Emily, who was dust in the grave, who had never been to Sullivan Park, which hadn't existed when she was alive, had her likeness rooted in one spot for eternity, to be defiled by birds and humped by drunk high school boys and drowned at the whim of the river. The poor girl hadn't lived long enough to disappoint anyone, and that had sealed her fate. Decades later, townspeople were still leaving flowers at her feet on Memorial Day, writing essays about her in school, and, in the case of Hannah Calhoun, standing before the statue on the news as she pleaded for her husband to return their nine-year-old daughter, tearfully invoking Emily as if she were the patron saint of Amber Alerts. There was an extract from The Wolf Once In, Laura McHugh's latest book that came out just a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> One of your fellow crime mystery writers, Jill Orr, was on the show a few weeks ago and she echoed what Gillian Flynn, author of Gone Girl, has said, which is that neither of them plot their stories in advance but often pursue dead ends and thus write a lot more than ever gets published. How do you write? Yeah, I'm the same way. Um, there's the plotter versus pantser debate. I'm a pantser. I have tried to be a plotter in the past. It didn't work for me. It just really sucks all the joy out of writing if I know everything that's supposed to happen when I am starting. I like to discover the story as I'm going. And so that's what works best for me. Do you at least know where it's going to end? You just don't know how you're going to get there? Or do you not even know how it's going to end? I usually don't know how it's going to end either. <laughs> I just get started. Once I've gotten a good grasp on the novel and I'm partway through, then I can go back and try to you know, put in some sort of structure and try to plan a little bit more. But yeah, I don't, I don't know when I begin usually. How do you begin? I often start from setting. Uh, setting is pretty big in my stories. The first one was the Ozarks. Uh, the second one was you know Mississippi Rivertown. And I start from that and then from the characters. Uh, my, I feel like my stuff's pretty character-driven, and so I'm focused a lot on the characters' motivations and desires, and the story will grow from that. I mean, the landscape is definitely one of the main characters in, in your book, too, for me. I loved Arrowwood. I loved the house and the setting. Um, I, there were paragraphs in Arrowwood that I just kept reading over and over because they were so full of personality. And I didn't want to leave them behind. <laughs> oh, thank you. I love that. <laughs> I think, I think, I mean, I love, I love all of your three books, but I think Arrowwood was my favorite. I don't, I, your middle child so yes, far. Yes, <laughs> the middle child. I love that. I love to get some love for the middle child. Yeah. I've talked sometimes to painters about when they've had a new series of work and they, and they release the work and they are changed by that work being out in the public arena are you are you changed by the books once they leave you what's the residual change for you for me I don't know uh, I don't know I suppose that does change you in a way and part of it is taking these very private things when you're writing it can feel so intimate and to just release that into the world and you know not everyone is going to like what you do and some people will like what you do. And you really have no control over any of that once it has left you. It's its own thing. It's out there in the world making its way. And to be able to sort of just let that go and let that be and just, just accept that for what it is, that's kind of been a process for me. And I think that's, that's maybe changed me a bit. Are there, are there any characters that you wish you hadn't given to the world? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I I don't think so. I actually really enjoy writing the creepy characters probably the most. Those dark, creepy people like Jamie Petrie in The Weight of Blood, for example. Uh, he was one of my favorites. And for some reason, that just comes really naturally to me to write those sort of people. Do you think if you met somebody like that in real life, you'd recognize them straight away? <laughs> 
I don't know. Maybe I would just be kind of studying them and taking their mannerisms <laughs> and their their speech and just trying to incorporate that into a character down the road, probably. I mean, the, you have so many great characters in your books. Are, are any of them drawn, without giving any names away, are any of them sure. drawn from real people? Well, I will say I put little bits of myself in different characters in different books. And it's kind of fun for me to put that in there. And sometimes people can guess and sometimes they don't. But for example, Arden, the main character in Arrowwood, she has a little piece of me. She has, I don't know how many tens of thousands of unread emails in her inbox. And that is me completely. I'm always trying to avoid all of that. All that stuff is piling up. So it's kind of neat to give them some of my little quirks and mannerisms here and there to different characters. For me, I guess the first introduction I had to Rural Noir in the Midwest genre, at least, was maybe Daniel Woodard's book, Winter's Bone. And I think he grew up in the county next to you. And now Rural Noir is just, you know, a super hot genre. Why are people so fascinated by it? I mean, it was very interesting to me at first that people, even people in other countries, were interested in it. And I think it's just really that way of life in that part of the country is a little more unknown and almost exotic to them just because it's so different. Because we read so many novels that are set, you know, in, in New York City or something like that. And so for them to read something in a place where they're not even sure on the map where that is and have to look it up, that's that's interesting to them. It's a bit intriguing. And I think this place being kind of so hidden and rural and out of the way makes it seem a bit more dangerous. And you wonder what could happen there and what people are doing. Do you think it's a boost to tourism or a detriment <laughs> to tourism? <laughs> yes, someone once was like, oh, you need to include tourism brochures in these books so they are assured that it's a nice place i do try to tell people lovely float trips and hiking and all of these wonderful things in the ozarks obviously i would not be living here if i thought it was a terrible place and then all they hear is kind of the dueling banjos from deliverance yes exactly exactly yeah (laughs) so why is it still a struggle for female crime writers to have their books revered and, and recognized at the same rate as male crime writers I mean, it's so interesting because so many of the people buying and reading these books are women, and the people publishing them and editing them, they're women. And it's been interesting for me, I was just talking with Jill Orr about some writing things, and I've been traveling around for this book, and the past few events I've had, I've had men, middle-aged men, raise their hands and come up, and they say, this is the first time I'm reading a book about a woman by a woman and I am loving it and they are they're almost shocked and they are excited that they are discovering wow if I like this kind of book I like a crime thriller it doesn't matter who wrote it it's it's a good it's a good book and so I'm hoping that that continues and there are so many women who are doing exceptionally well in the genre and really succeeding and just need to make sure more of those books are the ones getting reviewed and getting nominated for things and and all of that but I think we're definitely getting there. Did you ever think about writing under a male pseudonym like J.K. Rowling? I mean, so famous, still felt like she had to write as Robert Galbraith for her crime series. No, actually, a lot of men now are writing using a pseudonym with initials to appear as though they are a female writer in the mystery genre. And Hmm. there's been a lot of discussion about that as well, because they feel like, oh, the female writers are able to do all this domestic suspense and all these, you know, number one bestselling books. And so I think they're trying to kind of get in on that a little bit by using the pseudonyms. My father once said to me many years ago, he, he loved crime novels, but he said, I would never read a book written by a woman. I said, what if I wrote it? And he said, well, I'd glance at it. Oh, no. <laughs> That's horrible. Thanks, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I never wrote one, so it was irrelevant. But anyway, tell us what you're working on next. 
Yes, I'm, I'm still under contract with Random House for my next book. I'm getting very close to finishing it, which is exciting. And it's set, again, down in the Ozarks and deals with missing persons case. So There's a theme here through all your books. Yes. <laughs> missing persons, people. yes. How long, I mean, the process to get a book out in the world is so lengthy. So you're almost finished it, but I mean, we won't see it, what, until 2021? Well, if I can get it in this fall, it could be late 2020, but we just have to see. It does take about a year from the time it's really done, done before it can come out. Well, I can't wait to read it. I'm a big fan. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. My guest today has been rural noir crime writer Laura McHugh. Her third novel, The Wolf Wants In, came out earlier this month and is available at Skylark Bookshop. And it's a fabulous read. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you for having me. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts. And before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, I have a list of arts events coming up that would like to find their way into your diaries. With Monday being Labor Day, a lot of theatres are dark this weekend, except Maplewood Barn, where their production of the Neil Simon farce Rumours features a stellar cast of Columbia players. You can catch it tonight, tomorrow and Sunday at 8pm. Tickets are $10 and the show will run for one more weekend. And even though it's raining today, I do believe that they will be inside the barn tonight, so the show will go on. Artists wanting to submit an artwork for Daniel Boone Regional Library's One Read Art Show this year entitled Travellers may drop their work off at All Street Studios today between 4 and 6 or last chance tomorrow between 11am and 2pm. And at Rose Park tonight, the Molly Healy Band, probably indoors, maybe Rose Musical tonight, the Molly Healy Band are playing a free concert starting at 7. Tomorrow at the Blind Boone Home on North 4th Street, Sutu Forte and Johnny Hodges present Let's Go Back, a salon tribute to a gentler time. And that's from 1 till 3pm. This is a free concert, but donations for the Blind Boone Home are appreciated. A new show opens at the Lyceum Theatre in Ararock tomorrow night. Crimes of the Heart is a zany, warm-hearted and imaginative southern gothic tale of relationships run amok and dreams gone awry. There are two performances tomorrow at 2 and 8pm plus a 2pm matinee on Sunday. Tickets cost $40 and the show continues next week. Big Smith return to town tomorrow night for a summer fest event at Rose Park and tickets for that show are $15. And at Les Bourgeois you can hear Columbia's soul group Loose Loose as part of the Les Bourgeois Live at the A-Frame concert series. Music kicks off at 7pm tomorrow and the concert is free to attend though you should probably plan on drinking some wine. Sunday afternoon, the Ashby Hodge Gallery in Fayette has an opening reception for its new show featuring works from the William Kuntz collection and hooked rugs created by the Big Muddy Rug Hooking Guild. The reception is from 1.30 till 4.30 and that show continues through November the 14th. And at Rose Park, the 2019 Bocomo Ramble takes to the stage Sunday night for their free Labor Day weekend show. This year featuring Paul Weber and the Scrappers, Austin Jones and the Boothill Boys and Missouri Monsters, all hosted by KOPN's own Woody Adkins of The Real Deal Country Show. The show starts at 7pm and again, it is totally free to attend. Tuesday morning, the Museum of Art and Archaeology has its twice-monthly sketch group gathering. Drawing pads, pencils and supplies are provided and neither previous drawing experience nor an RSVP are needed. Just show up at 10am. Poet, writer and storyteller Tanner Olson will be at Skylark Bookshop on Tuesday evening from 6 till 7.30 to read from his new book of poetry called I'm All Over the Place. At Rose Park, their Movies in the Park showing this week is 10 Things I Hate About You, which will be on the big 
screen at 8.30, and that's a free event. And musical theatre actors interested in performing in Columbia Entertainment Company's upcoming production of Dreamgirls can audition at CEC Theatre on Nelwood Drive on both Tuesday and Wednesday evenings next week, starting at 7pm. The first book discussion as part of the One Read Month of events surrounding the Jessica Bruder book Nomadland is next Wednesday with Mayor Brian Treese and his wife Mary Phillips. The discussion is from 7 till 8pm will be in the children's programme room at the Daniel Boone Regional Library. And at Rose Music Hall next Wednesday, mid-Missouri singer-songwriters are invited to trade sets on the patio at the monthly Ramblers Club Singer-Songwriter Night. That evening starts at 8pm and it's free to attend. At the Blue Note next Thursday, One Mike is hosting an evening of art and poetry supporting justice and healthcare, with proceeds raised going to Missouri Jobs with Justice. Tickets are $5 on the door and the event starts at 7pm. And finally, Rose Music Hall and Clayton Missler host the monthly Pints and Punchlines comedy night next Thursday at 9pm. And the evening of comedy is yours for just $3. You've been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Club with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views, and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia.